You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Burton Gerber. Burton Gerber was a career officer of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, he spent his years there in the uh, clandestine service, the director of operations, uh, to the greatest extent on the Soviet Union and other uh, satellite countries. He served as a chief of station in several of those countries, including Moscow, and his in, in his latter uh, Last tours in the agency, he was a policy advisor to the uh, director of intelligence on human requirements, that is, human intelligence requirements. Uh, since then, he's been quite active uh, as, a, uh, as a lecturer. He has written extensively and lectured on ethics. He is currently a, a uh, uh, lecturer at the Georgetown University. His course is uh, very popular on intelligence issues, and we are delighted to have him here with us today. Thank you very much, Peter. I'm delighted to be here. And I'd just like to mention that uh, we usually don't uh, set our uh, interviews in time, uh, but I'd like to do it now because today is the 25th of September, so we are in the run-up to the election. Uh, we are all looking at the fact we owe something like $700 trillion as taxpayers in the years to come. But I mention this specifically because uh, Burton has been very concerned, I think, as have many professional intelligence officers uh, with the reforms in the intelligence community, formation of the director of the DNI, Director of National Intelligence, and also reforms within CIA. And I would, I really would like to hear his thoughts, and I, I know you would too, on those issues. Let me present it to you this way, Burton. If you had a chance to talk to the new president, whoever he may be, or his national security advisor, what might be some highlights or the kernel of what you might recommend as issues to consider early on? Right now, if I could speak to the incoming president or to any of the officials who are going to be leading the intelligence and national security programs in our country, I would say, first off, 
determine what you have, examine it, but be very careful about trying to change things. The intelligence community has gone through major changes since the year 2001, necessary changes in most instances in order to improve intelligence collection analysis and application. But it takes a while to swallow all those changes. It takes a while to organize everything in accordance with the new laws and, and uh, executive orders. So it's a time to sit back and see what you have and utilize that to the best extent possible. It's not a time to propose new legislation, although there will be, I am sure, proponents for that kind of course. The creation of the Director of National Intelligence and the Director of National Intelligence or Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which now have a major role in the national security community, has provided a lot of new opportunities, but also, I think, has created uh, some issues that uh, need to be addressed within the intelligence community. Not long ago, early this month, General Hayden, speaking at the second DNI conference on open source, said that when he, as the deputy director of national intelligence to Ambassador Negroponte, in the very beginning of the organization of the DNIO, that they had concluded the three most important things to do would be the creation of the National Humid Service in the CIA, and that would be the service that would handle espionage, uh, oversee espionage by all appropriate elements of the U.S. government. Essentially, that would be CIA and aspects of the Defense Department the creation of the national security branch within the FBI so that the FBI was looking beyond the question of crime solving but to include preemptive um, attack on those who would uh, do us harm. And the third thing was the creation of an open source center to enlarge and enhance the ability of the United States to collect information from open sources. I think all three of those things have come to fruition in varying degrees of, um, of success. Um, the one that I, the open source center has certainly expanded everyone's understanding of open source as being something more than the media, than listening to radio and television and reading newspapers. That it's a very broad field and particularly now with changes in in uh, domestic and international communications um, with you, where you have blogs and you have the internet and so forth, there are so many more aspects of open source collection. And now the problem often in that field is to uh, make sure that you get the right things. There's way too much, so you have to pick out what's the right things to concentrate on and then how to analyze them because the sourcing of those things is obviously uh, indefinite in many instances. Probably the creation of the National uh, Human uh, Center in the um, National Human Service in the CIA is going very well. Just just uh, one quick mm -hmm. thing, human again being human intelligence recruitment and running of, right. of agents. Yeah, of human, human intelligence mm -hmm. is two things, is the traditional espionage, recruiting and running agents, but it's also uh, the overt not open, but overt collection of material by uh, military officers, State Department officers, and other officials. 
but most of what everyone thinks about, including the officers practicing it, human means espionage, and that's the element in uh, th that I think is, is going along pretty smartly. There's obviously things to improve in how they do their jobs. The third one about the creation of the National Security Branch and the FBI is the one I think where the case is still open. And recently, uh, Siobhan Gorman with her um, uh, colleague Evan Perez in the Wall Street Journal wrote about that and the fact that it's still an open discussion as to how well they are doing. Uh, there's a couple of issues. One is, of course, that the FBI is probably the world's leading crime-fighting organization, has had remarkable success in that job over the years since 1925 when Director Hoover made it a professional organization. Uh, Crime-fighting and intelligence collection are two very different aspects of work. Um, and th that, that culture of crime-fighting has to be modified for those who are working in the national security branch. The other aspect in the Bureau to look at would be the success of the analysts. Uh, the FBI has gone uh, into the as it should, into the analytic business, but there's still complaints, as Gorman and Perez point out, that analysts are not treated equally with special agents, that the culture still looks upon them as um, a subordinate group within the organization. And to have success, I think they're going to have to be moved into uh, a higher uh, uh, degree of recognition, receive greater recognition. Uh, so with that and those kinds of changes, there's a lot going on, which is why I said at the beginning that it's not the time to start reorganizing again. Uh, anyone could probably pick out some things, well, if only we could tweak that or um, mess around with something else, it might improve. But it might not. Let's let the, the new president and the new Congress get comfortable with what they have and look carefully at what they might want to adjust. One of the major changes, of course, Burton, was the uh, the creation of the uh, of a director of national intelligence, and I think one of the concerns by uh, people in the profession at the time was that it might become simply another layer of bureaucracy. Um, I do know that there have been concerns expressed from time to time in the media in talking to professionals that it was taking over aspects of the intelligence community which might be called operational rather than simply uh, performing its task of overseeing the community and exercising management over resources uh, and direction, let's say. Do you have some thoughts on the DNI and that office? Yes, certainly you have uh, posed the question that I think anyone studying the DNI has to uh, try to answer. When um, the DNI uh, office was f first written about in the 9-11 report, um, it was proposed to create this organization with up to 300 persons. Um, and that number has far since been, um, been exceeded by many times that and it's still been growing, although there is some sentiment to cut it back, but not significantly so. Um, 
recently at a Council on Foreign Relations program, Representatives Jane Harmon and Peter Herkstra, both of whom were involved with the intelligence oversight committees, commented about the question of the DNI organization, the DNIO, and that they thought that it had become too large and too bureaucratic, and they were worried that it is a bureaucratic layer when they intended, they said, that it that the DNI be primarily a strategic organization to set the the broad parameters of what intelligence should be and how it should be evaluated, and that the intelligence agencies themselves be the action elements, the executors, and so forth. Um, I think this is going to be one of the issues that has to eventually be addressed. How large should the DNIO be? What should its powers, or not powers so much, what should its authorities and what should its intent, its, um, its uh, activities be? Right now, it verges on creating a layer that inhibits rather than increases agility. Um, as uh, Congressman Hoekstra said, when we were when our enemy was the Soviet Union, we needed to stay one step ahead of them. But nowadays, with a much more diverse uh, group of hostile states and groups, we need to have much more agility, and that agility comes from reducing, not increasing, bureaucracy. You know, Burton, you and I are both uh, sons of the clandestine service, if, if you will. We both spent careers there. And I must say, having, having spent my career there in the Cold War, uh, in a sense I don't envy my uh, successors in dealing with the targets uh, that they are today, particularly the terrorist target and some of the others, uh, which just seem uh, to be – they're very different in nature than what you and I dealt with. And I just wonder if you have a sense of the degree to which uh, the agency, CIA, and the National Clandestine Service, as it's now called – uh, has been able to, to, to both develop platforms, to make progress on those targets. Certainly we read about CIA being in the forefront of the, some of the paramilitary activities uh, in Iraq and, and, and in Afghanistan, being literally in the front lines of that, which is just extraordinary uh, and has been extraordinarily successful. But what about the other targets that we're going to be confronting for the next, certainly the next five, ten years? Well, it's very difficult for an outsider to make a judgment on the success that the American intelligence community has been having against the uh, diverse targets that they now have. And those most important targets today, I th think, would be um, in terms of terrorists, um, pro weapons proliferation, and hostile states. And those hostile states include the ones that um, are particularly involved in several of the things I just mentioned, like Iran and North Korea, um, but also includes um, an adversary as Russia. The fact that it is no longer the kind of military threat uh, that it was when the Warsaw Pact existed does not mean that they still don't have the ability to destroy the United States militarily because of their missiles, both the United States and Russia have way too many missiles, and I think both should, in negotiations, work to reduce those. Um, so Russia and is evidenced in its recent incursion 
uh, into uh, Georgia, uh, certainly has designs on what it calls its near neighbors. And so that has to be watched both from clandestine uh, intelligence programs and from, of course, the traditional diplomatic and military programs. Uh, the penetrating uh, terror organizations and penetrating uh, non-governmental proliferation organizations is very difficult because there isn't an address that you can uh, uh, focus on as uh, the place uh, to, to uh, be. And so you have to be, on, first of all, on the edges of the terrorist and proliferation organizations, trying to understand them, trying to learn something about their financing and their logistics, who are their supporters, both either state or non-state actors, and um, penetrating by um, intelligence programs, and that includes HUMINT and SIGINT, and Im SIGINT is signals intelligence and imagery, which is uh, uh, photography usually considered from overhead from satellite systems, um, to determine um, what the target is and what they may be up to. There's been some considerable success in that, but not enough because unlike the dealing with the Soviet foreign ministry and intelligence services and scientific laboratories, these are places without addresses, uh, without fixed uh, sites, and so it's a, it becomes an issue of sorting, looking for, for the pins in the haystack, and when you have to go through a lot of haystacks where actually there may not be any pins at all. Burton, in, in uh, 2005, you published a book, you co-edited a book with Jennifer Sims, who's also at Georgetown University, called Transforming U.S. Intelligence, in which you uh, solicited a number of, of essays, articles on different aspects of intelligence, uh, including how it's organized, how it's carried out, and including you contributed an article yourself. And one of the elements in that article, which you have focused on since your retirement from the agency, is the subject of ethics. And I wonder, in looking back, were you satisfied with the level to which that was addressed in the agency? And are there ways in which you could suggest it be addressed today? And the reason I raise that is when I speak I often get questions from people concerned about, as we deal with the terrorism target, as issues of torture and so forth come up and related issues, are we representative of American values? Is the ethics of the agency, to the extent you can generalize, the ethics that the American people would support? This is a very important topic because in a secret organization, be it CIA or be any note, one of the other uh, many uh, organizations that do their work predominantly or solely in secrecy. A major factor is how are they going about their business? What do they see as their responsibility uh, to do their job within the laws and, um, and mores of our society? This is something that I got heavily into when I was a serving officer, writing about it, often speaking about it as I have subsequently, and it remains one of my um, great interests. Uh, I believe that the U.S. military, particularly at the military academies, does an outstanding job 
in preparing its young officers to face ethical issues. Um, and in my own teaching experience in the graduate school at Georgetown University, I find some of the best papers I require in my courses each student to write at least one paper on intelligence ethics. And I find that the very best papers are done by those who have been graduated from the U.S. military academies. They get it. Uh, I would like to see that same kind of intensity of education and ethics in other organizations that deal with these kinds of issues. And that includes the State Department and the Defense Department as well as CIA. Because ethics in a closed organization is even more important than an open one where the kinds of checks and balances that come from media and other observation are not available. Um, I think that um, CIA is, uh, has addressed this issue to some extent. I believe that it could address it to a greater extent. There's obviously issues right now that have arisen from the whole question of, of um, interrogation of prisoners, interrogation of detainees, uh, that raise serious questions about how the United States is respecting international uh, national law, which includes international treaties to which we are obligated. Um, I think that the issue is well understood by the uh, our national leaders. Uh, I think that in some instances it needs to be addressed more firmly. Without looking for scapegoats, I don't think that should be the issue. I think, first of all, you start with the, the culture and the education of everyone who is responsible for intelligence programs, that they understand and acknowledge and respect the laws and the mores that the United States represents. I know uh, uh, one other issue that has concerned you, uh, Burton, and, and I'll come to that now as, as our last question, and that is that I understand you and Jennifer Sims are preparing uh, a book now that you're also editing on the subject of counterintelligence, and that's a responsibility that is shared across the agencies in the community, and I wonder if you could give us, or I would ask if you could give us your final thoughts about counterintelligence as the community faces it now? Counterintelligence is often misunderstood as meaning catching spies because there'll be headlines when a Ames or a Hansen is caught and everyone thinks of that as counterintelligence. And counterintelligence is sometimes thought of as security is meaning, you know, ensuring that only uh, people who ha have uh, proper clearance have access to classified information that badges and safes and fences and so forth all keep out those who shouldn't have access to classified information. But that's a really small part of what we consider in our volume on counterintelligence, which will be published early, in early '09 by Georgetown University Press. Uh, because what we consider in counterintelligence is a much more active kind of counterintelligence. The business of being aggressive to use information of deception and denial, for instance, uh, to mislead opponents, uh, to understand the greater technolo technological threats uh, to our country, uh, particularly in the cyber field. This is probably not yet 
well enough understood, certainly not by the average citizen and not even by many in the national security community about what uh, opposition services or opposition elements, uh, hostile elements, can do. So what we're trying to do is bring together with some real experts in the field writing about how counterintelligence needs to be expanded in thought and in scope so that it becomes aggressive counterintelligence as part of the defense of the United States. Burton, thank you so much for being here today and thank you for sharing your thoughts. Uh, these are questions that the, uh, the next president and his administration are going to be looking at and uh, I hope that your guidance finds its way into hands that uh, will be part of that process. Thank you again for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed very much seeing you today. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org.